A question that I would like to reflect on and consider this evening is how we can manifest our intentions of goodwill and loving-kindness in our relationships, in our work environment, in our lives in the world. How can we connect what we're doing here with how we actually live? Now, recollecting our aspiration to practice for the benefit of all beings and repeating the phrases of loving-kindness bear tremendous fruit. These are very powerful seeds, and Susan's image of the garden list the other evening was, was beautiful. It's really planting these seeds, and it bears great fruit. But it's also not enough. Because, to use a little slang language, we need to walk the talk. It's not enough just to sit here and have these loving wishes in our mind. We need to express these intentions in our actions. That's, that's where the real meaning uh, will lie. <clears throat> so in one verse of the Buddha, it's a verse the Dhammapada, which is a collection, a famous collection in verse form of some of his teachings, he summed up in this one verse how action, love, compassion, and wisdom really are all expressions of each other, how they interact, how they support each other. And this is the verse, and it's a very famous verse you know, in, in the teachings, where the Buddha said, Refrain from all unwholesome actions. Perform wholesome ones. Purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. It's very straightforward. (laughs) Refrain from unskillful actions. Do skillful ones. Purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. And that last line refers to really the timeless aspect of the teachings. Because what he's saying is, these are the same teachings of Buddhas in the past, the same teachings of the Dharma, Buddhas in the future. The Dharma is timeless. But he didn't just stop with this one verse. To help us further, in case we're not exactly clear in ourselves, Well, what are the unwholesome actions to avoid? He spelled them out for us. He pointed out those actions which cut us off from the feelings of love, from the feelings of compassion. He pointed out those actions which cause suffering in our lives. The entire spiritual journey rests on the foundation, on the morality of non-harming. It's impossible to separate meditative realization from moral and ethical behavior. When we first came back, you know, in the very early years, when I first came back from India and started teaching, this is like 30 years ago, you know, we were so fired up by the meditation and getting enlightened and all of that, we didn't speak much about sila, about ethical behavior, because we thought people don't want to hear about that. You know, they want to hear about liberation and awakening. But it became clear pretty quickly in the teaching that that you can't separate it. And my first teacher, Munindraji, he had a great image. He said... Trying to practice meditation without the foundation of ethical behavior is getting into a rowboat, you know, and trying to row across the river and putting all of this effort into rowing, but never untying the boat from the dock. It doesn't get anywhere. So we really need to see this. And I think particularly in times like these, where there's a lot of 
um, cultural change. You know, where there is an often useful questioning of old norms, um, of morality and values. In times of, of change like this, where we're really reassessing, it's very important to re-articulate the need for personal integrity and personal responsibility. So don't, we don't simply get lost in our own desires and impulses. It's said that what most moved the Buddha to begin teaching after his enlightenment was his seeing people who wanted happiness and yet doing the very things that cause suffering. And of course we can see that in our own lives. You know, we all want happiness and yet how often do we get involved in behaviors that over and over again <coughs> just produce suffering. So this teaching, this is really one of my favorite talks because it's so explicit. And the Buddha just laid it out. He said, these are the ten actions that are unwholesome. They will cause suffering to ourselves, suffering to other people. And I just so appreciate the clarity of it. Now, all of them, <coughs> excuse me, all of them are quite familiar. So it's not that it's any, mostly familiar. You know, so not any great new surprises. But hearing them explicitly <coughs> may help us remember in our lives, in the moments of intending to act, right in that moment of intention, if we can remember this and recollect this, it gives us the opportunity to the space, the space to consider, is this helpful or not helpful? Is it onward leading or not onward leading? So the Buddha talked of <coughs> three unwholesome or unskillful actions of body, <coughs> four of speech, and three of mind. So the first unskillful action of the body, obvious, not killing, not harming others physically. (coughs) Uh, And just think what the world would be like if people just followed this one precept, people not killing people. Just that. And... It's not so hard to grasp. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious. Sometimes I feel like, you know, the Buddha is this kindergarten teacher. You know, like, okay, don't kill. <laughs> but we see that in our poor old world, there's a lot of killing, a lot of harming of one another physically. Not only people killing people. You know, he was saying, we shouldn't kill animals for pleasure or for sport or, you know, because we don't like the way they look. When, when I was first practicing in India, during the summer months I would go up to the mountains because it was very hot on the plains and just rent you know, a kind of primitive cottage and uh, stay there and practice. Well, this was up in Dalhousie, which is kind of one of the hill stations in India. Hill station there is 8,000 feet in the Himalayas. There were these huge spiders. I mean... (laughs) 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 Maybe like that. (laughs) They were big. They they were these kind of big, hairy spiders on on the ceiling and the... the, the, uh, Didn't like them, you know. But here I was practicing and I really had undertaken this commitment not to kill, you know. So what to do? Actually, they weren't bothering me. They were just living in their space, you know, up on the ceiling. And I just 
got okay with it. Okay, they're up there, I'm down here. And we really learned to coexist. It was fine. But when I think of kind of our culture here, we see the, you know, the first kind of little insect we don't like, and okay, take out the can of raid and you know, exterminate it. Is it possible to change our relationship, to really practice? Make it a practice of a certain kind of connection with all life. As you probably know, I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, one time or another, you know, squashed this or sprayed that. And you know, if you reflect on those, it doesn't feel good. You know, we may not like the insect or whatever it is and want to get rid of it, but in the moment of killing, it's not a good feeling. You know, and there's this real separation and alienation and disconnect. There's a wonderful book which I read years ago, and I don't even know if it's still in print, but it, the name of the book was called Kinship with All Life. And it was an amazing story of this guy who had this kind of telepathic communication with animals and many, many stories and illustrations of how of how it worked in his lives. It was quite amazing. I mean, with, with higher life forms, you know, like dogs and cats and stuff, but also with flies. Yeah. And, and the, the story was amazing. And it just reinforced this idea that in some way, it's the same life force within all of us. You know, and each form of life is limited by its particular form. But every living being has that desire, wants to continue living. So can we practice it? The Buddha is saying taking of life is an unskillful action. Sometimes, though, difficult questions present themselves. It's not always so simple, even when we really do value this. Now, what do you do with Mosquitoes carrying malaria. You say, okay, be happy. <laughs> you know, or, you know, carpenter ants are eating up your house. Well, maybe a great saint would say, take the house. <laughs> you know, but if we're not quite there yet. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, sometimes there are choices that we make that we know, okay, this, this really is unskillful, but given all the circumstances, it just feels, you know, that for what, given our life situation, it feels the appropriate thing to do. So there will be these dif- difficult ethical situations that arise at different times, but even then, and even if we do feel, okay, this, we really need to do this, can we do it with as much compassion as possible instead of with aversion or hatred? You know, so even though it's still unskillful, at least we're surrounding it with some wholesome mind states. So it's something to work with. This is a practice. Not stealing is the second of the unwholesome actions not taking things that aren't offered. You know, and this plays out in so many ways. It plays out in the work situation, in the work environment. And we know, you know, just these last years, these huge corporate scandals, you know, where people at the top basically just stealing with huge, huge impact on the people underneath. You know, huge lives, I don't know if ruined is the right word, but very, very difficult. Just from not honoring such a basic understanding that stealing is unwholesome, it's unskillful. It causes suffering in the long run for oneself, causes obvious suffering for other people. And we may find ourselves 
you know, in different life situations, we're not not on the scale, perhaps, of you know some of that grand thievery, but where we get involved in taking things which are not offered in one way or another. I had one experience, this is years ago, this is maybe like 40 years ago, and it's still in my mind, you know, of something. I was in Nepal, I was coming back from the Peace Corps, just finished the Peace Corps in Thailand, I was traveling back in Nepal, went up to this small town, not really town, like a hill station, Nagarkot, from which you can see Mount Everest. So it's like a popular one-day trek. Stay overnight, and at that time it was a very primitive uh, lean-to. I don't, I don't know what's there now, but magnificent. I mean, you're looking out at the Himalayas, and there's Mount Everest in the distance. And it got very cold, you know, when the sun went down. So as soon as it got dark, we all went into this little cabin to sleep, and on each bed uh, there were two blankets. You know, so we all go to sleep, and then late at night, uh, late arriving trekker came and there was one bed left and there was only one blanket on his cot. And so he or the caretaker said, you know, well, does anybody have an extra blanket? And I realized that there were three blankets on mine. And everybody had two. Mine had three. This poor guy had one. And I was kind of pretending to be asleep. <laughs> <laughs> And it was really cold, you know, and I, and I, well, I didn't ask for the third blanket. <laughs> you know, it was just here. And I was just, you know, kind of rationalizing all this. And I didn't. I just, I just stayed quiet, you know. And it's amazing. Then as I got more into the practice, you know, it was, this just came back to my mind. And, you know, it was such kind of not a very good feeling. <laughs> So these situations, you know, come up, just simple situations in our lives where we may not be maybe low-level stealing, low-level thievery. Um, It can get very refined. You know, I just did a month at the Forest Refuge, and my yoga job was putting out the tea things and then after putting it away putting all the tea things away. And as I was putting the tea things away, I saw on the counter, kind of, there was like a Tupperware container of some really delicious, somebody had made homemade tortillas, you know, just a little cheese. They were good. (laughs) And they were there from the, the day before. And I went in and I saw them on the counter in the little container. I thought, well, you know, I'm doing my yogi job. And <laughs> <laughs> so I just, you know, I'm sure it would be okay. <laughs> so I just took a couple of the, you know, these out of the uh, container. And it was funny, the next sitting I just went to sit, and it just wasn't quite right. Not that anybody cared, and not that if I had asked... They wouldn't have given, but it was really taking what wasn't offered, you know. And in the in the refinement of a retreat space, even little things we begin to see and feel oh, that was slightly off. That was that wasn't really impeccable. So that's the beauty of quieting our minds enough, so we can see, so we can actually refine the level of our sila, of our non-harming. So not killing, not stealing, or taking things which aren't offered. The third of the unwholesome physical actions of body, big area, and that are actions of sexual misconduct. And this is hugely important to look at because as we all know, sexual energy is very powerful. Hugely powerful. One of my all-time favorite Burmese-English translations was about this precept. Saida Upandita was talking about it. 
and he was going on and on in Burmese for some time. And then it all got translated in one sentence. <laughs> and it, th- this, is, <laughs> this is a great translation sentence. It was, lust cracks the brain. <laughs> it does. It really does, as we know. So we need to really pay attention. You know, refraining from sexual misconduct means different things at different levels. So, for example, for monks and nuns, it really means sexual abstinence. There, there are vows, precepts. You know, just refraining from all sexual activity. For people on retreat, we take a temporary vow of abstinence. And so the level of restraint for us in this context is for this time. We refrain from sexual activity. For lay people in the world, you know, just as we're living our lives in the world, mostly <clears throat> this refers to not using our sexual energy in a harmful way. You know, not in an exploitive way, not in a dishonest way. What makes this so, um, such a powerful arena to pay attention to is that often when we are filled with desire and passion and sexual energy, for many people, it's when we feel most alive. You know, it's, it's a very powerful force. So the question is, are we just swept away by it? You know, is that what's running us? Is that force calling the shots, making the decisions? Or do we have enough presence of mind, enough awareness to be with it, to feel it, to express it in appropriate ways, but really to see it as a training? You know, and to see, yes, this can be used skillfully, it can be used unskillfully. The retreat time is a very, um, it's a very good opportunity to learn about the nature of desire. Because we are, you know, following a precept of temporary abstinence. That doesn't mean desires don't come. You know, they may very well come. But because we've chosen for this time not to act on them, it becomes a very insightful way to see the transient, impermanent nature of desire. Yes, you know, maybe sexual desire comes, fantasies come. And because we're in this setting, we can see them come, and we're not acting on them, and we're not suppressing them. They simply come, they're there, and they go, all by themselves. Well, to see that and to really have that insight that even this very strong, compelling energy that can arise in our lives is transient. It's impermanent. That's tremendously freeing. Because then as it arises in our lives, we're not driven by it. We're not compelled by it. So there's a lot to learn about desire on a retreat where we're not acting it out. Okay, so these are the three unwholesome actions of body to refrain from. Not to kill, not to take life, not to harm people physically, not to take that which is an orphan to us, and to refrain from sexual misconduct. Not using that energy in a harmful way, in a destructive way. And there are four (coughs) unwholesome actions of speech. I think very often we don't appreciate how powerful an influence speech is in our lives. We're so busy talking (laughs) that we don't often kind of step back and see the effect 
you know, and how it's influencing and how it's conditioning our own minds and affecting other people. There is so much suffering that arises from lack of attention to this part of our lives. Now the Buddha singled out right speech as one aspect of the eightfold path to awakening, to enlightenment. But I think for many of us, okay, meditation and concentration, and that, that's the real work. And that's the you know, speech that's kind of second, second tier practice. It's not. Speech conditions our relationships, conditions our minds. It conditions karmic consequences in the future. So what are the unskillful patterns of speech? Again, some are very obvious. Lying. Not a good thing to do. Now, and there are many kinds of false speech. I mentioned briefly just a few. You know, we can exaggerate kind of veer from the truth. We can say on things, untrue things, you know, for the humor of it, humorous untruths. We can use untruths as a kind of self-protection. We, we feel like we're protecting ourselves in some way, or maybe even protecting others. You know, we have this idea. And the, the, the extreme, of course, is when people are telling deliberate lies with malicious intent. You know, where their intent is to harm and cause divisiveness. So given the fact that most of us probably have some experience with at least shading the truth, <laughs> if not malicious lying, I think it's very interesting to look at the motivation behind it. Well, why do we lie? You know, why, why not just be completely honest? about things. Is it greed? You know, are we are we shading the truth out of greed? You know, or some desire for self aggrandizement, you know, to make ourselves look better? Or fear of rejection? You know, maybe we lie just because we feel we'll be rejected if we say the truth. You know, maybe out of jealousy. There are a lot of different motivations. So it would be worth looking at that. Lying is a great disservice to the people around us because it diminishes people's ability to trust. You know, people may feel something is wrong, but if we're not being very truthful, so then they begin to doubt their own perceptions and everything gets very confused. It doesn't make for harmonious relationships. Now, the Buddha, before his enlightenment, was called the Bodhisattva, that is, a being aspiring to enlightenment. And there are stories, you know, all the, all the stories of his many, many past lives as he was, as a Bodhisattva, working for awakening. And it's said that ever since it was prophesied by a, a previous Buddha, you know, that the hermit Sumedho would become a future Buddha, that to all the innumerable lifetimes as a bodhisattva, even though he committed many of these unskillful actions you know, in the course of his practice, it said that the one action he never committed, unwholesome action, was to knowingly say an untruth. I've, I just find that inspiring. What would it be like just to... Make that commitment. It's strong. It's a very strong commitment. Never knowingly say an untruth. So I think it's worth considering. You know, this, this is what energizes our practice and manifests in, in the world. You know, in that sense, we become bodhisattvas. There's a very inspiring book 
It's called Life and Death in Shanghai. It was written by a woman, uh, not sure I'll pronounce it right, Nian Cheng, who was married, she lived in China during the Cultural Revolution, and I think her husband worked in one of the international corporations there. Anyway, she was imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution. And the government at that time, horribly mistreated you know, and tortured, and they were trying to get her to incriminate the then premier of China, Chou Enlai. You know, and they were really brutalizing her. But she had such a commitment to the truth that she just refused to say that which wasn't true. And this is years in prison, you know, under those circumstances. You know, and finally they said they were going to release her and, you know, they're just kind of escorting her out and said, okay, well, now you have to sign it. And she wouldn't. And and even at the risk of going back into prison, you know, and finally she got out and, and she moved to the States and she wrote this book about that whole experience, but it was tremendously inspiring to me because within the, the large Buddhist vision of life and death and rebirth and realms of existence and, you know, the whole grand vision of this universe, some things are considered of more value than life itself. Because, of course, the idea is that life doesn't end at death. And it's just holding certain values to that depth. Commitment to truthfulness. I think, for me, it's just, it's a very inspiring aspiration. Okay, so that's, that's the first. The unskillful action is not lying. Second is not using harsh or aggressive or angry speech. You know, words, as we all know, are impactful. Words can hurt. Words can harm. And so we need to be conscious of the motivation and the energy behind them. How do we feel? You know, when we're on the receiving end of angry words, you know, of really aggressive speech, how do we feel? It doesn't feel good. Mostly we put up whatever defenses we can, so it doesn't hurt us. We might get reactively angry back. It's not exactly the perfect field for good communication. And the intent here is not to suppress whatever feelings we may be having. You know, there may be strong feelings that we feel we need to communicate. That's fine. But can we communicate it in a non-aggressive way? You know, without using this harsh language. Okay, the third kind of speech that is unskillful, the Buddha said to avoid, and this is a tough one. This is really a tough one. Gossip. (laughs) You know, and kind of backbiting and words that just cause disharmony among people, causes loss of friendship. So the question that I always try to ask is, well, what is the enjoyment of it? I mean, it's a very popular activity, you know, just sitting around talking about other people. (laughs) So what is the pleasure of that? You know what? I think in some way there is a perverted reaffirming of a sense of self. And as we speak about others with our various opinions and judgments and all that, we're sort of kind of bolstering up the self. Quite a few years ago, uh, this guy uh, came to interview me for a book he was writing about kind of spiritual scenes in America. So he wanted to interview me. And a very skillful interview and, and quite a good writer. So he started, we were just chatting, and then he started asking me all these questions about you know, all the other teachers in the various scenes. And of course, 
you know, I had my various opinions <laughs> about everybody. And I could see rising in me this huge temptation to, to kind of share my views. But for, I'm so grateful that there was enough mindfulness that I could see it and not do it. Yeah, so I just kind of... <laughs> and I, <laughs> I settled back and, you know, we just talked about other things. And of course, later on, the book came out and everything we talked about was in the book. And if I had kind of just, you know, given voice to all it, it would not have been skillful. One experiment I made early on in my, I was still in the Peace Corps when I was, this is like 40 years ago, when I was just learning about Buddhism and learning about all this and, and reading about right speech. I made this experiment, and it was a long, it was like for a few months, where I decided I wasn't going to speak about any third person. And I wasn't going to speak to someone about someone else. 90% of my speech was eliminated. <laughs> I, it was amazing to me. <laughs> and it was actually quite wonderful. Because first, my mind got a lot quieter. And even more important than that, I saw that as I wasn't giving voice to you know, all the judgments that often come up, and even if they're not malicious, you know, not even malicious judgments, just, just our two cents about other people. As I refrained from giving voice to it, I found that my mind actually became much less judgmental of others and much less judgmental of myself. It's like I wasn't reinforcing that pattern through this pattern of speech. So you might want to try it. And sometimes it was a little awkward, you know, when the conversation seemed to be uh, needing some reference. (laughs) So you can do, you know, you can either do it in kind of absolute way or just really pay attention when you're speaking about others. Is it being motivated from a place of metta? Is that the motivation or not? You know, so it's, it's a great exercise. It really wakes us up. Okay, the last of the unskillful types of speech, there's lying, there's aggressive speech, harsh speech, there's gossip. The last kind of unskillful speech the Buddha mentioned was avoiding frivolous talk, useless talk. It's quite amazing to me (laughs) just to be in a social situation and to see how often there'll be the impulse to say something completely useless. (laughs) We do it a lot, you know. And if it becomes excessive, and you know, when that becomes a predominant pattern of our speech, it really is, is not uh, skillful at all. At first it's enervating, there's a huge loss of energy. There's a loss of respect from others. You know, our words become worthless. We're not taking any care with our words. Sometimes there can be very bad consequences from just useless talk. So there's just one little story. This was told to me by a friend, and you have to realize that this, this story happened pre-9-11, because post-9-11 would have had even much worse consequences. Pre-9-11, this friend of mine from New York, he was going on this trip to Bali. He goes out to the airport, gets on the plane. He had an upgrade, so he was sitting in first class. And just getting comfortable and... Uh, he had injured his arm or his hand uh, recently. So he was just sitting in a seat and the stewardesses were coming over. And he was kind of exercising you know, his hand with some rubber balls, you know, like that. So the flight attendant just asked, well, you know, what is that? And just as a joke, he said, oh, it's plastique. You know, the explosive that people <laughs> use to blow things up. Well, I mean, he, he was just 
a joke. Within about two minutes, the FBI were on the plane. They escorted him out. He was interrogated for about four hours. They missed the plane. The airline said, you're never flying on this airline again. I mean, huge, huge mess. Okay, so finally, I mean, maybe it was a week later, he somehow got it together, got another flight. So he was in Bali. He was coming back. He was sitting, he was sitting in the airport you know, waiting to get on. And he's just speaking to the guy next to him and again, just unthinkingly, jokingly said, hey, you know you're sitting next to a terrorist? (laughs) Of course, as I say, post 9-11, it has a lot more oomph than pre, but still, you'd think one would have learned (laughs) from the... (laughs) But we... I think we all do it. You know, this, this is quite a little dramatic story, but in different ways. We, we just you know, are saying things that are meaningless. The speech that we use and the thoughts and motivations behind the speech are a major, major influence in our lives. Don't underestimate it. Four out of the ten unwholesome actions have to do with speech. So this is a great arena to practice and to practice metta. To see, okay, is that the motive behind what we're saying? The last three unwholesome actions, there are the three of body, four of speech, the last three are unskillful actions of mind. And the first of them is covetousness. You know, wanting what other people have. It's the wanting mind. And it's that inner sense, that inner feeling of never having enough, never being satisfied, never being fulfilled. It's just the opposite of, most many of you may be familiar of along with metta, some other associated states like compassion and what is called sympathetic joy, <clears throat> you know, which is taking happiness in the happiness of others. Well, this covetousness is exactly the opposite. You know, instead of just appreciating or taking joy in the happiness of others or what others may have, we want it for ourselves. And when this covetousness is strong, it leads to many more unwholesome states, you know, of envy, of jealousy, of ill will. I want, I want to read a little thing about this. It was uh, from the writer uh, Anne Lamott, and she was describing how difficult it is to deal with the triumphs of other writers, especially close friends. You know, I mean, she's a very accomplished writer, but in dealing with the success of others, especially close friends. So she said, it can wreak just the tiniest bit of havoc with your self-esteem to find that you are hoping for small bad things to happen to this friend. (laughs) For, say, her head to blow up. (laughs) (laughs) So we want to look at that attitude of mind. Now the Buddha, he spoke of the mind state of contentment as being one's greatest wealth. And so much, you know, in our culture, we're out there trying to get more and more and more. It's endless. To understand that contentment, the mind state of contentment, is actually our greatest wealth. And we see that on retreat. You know, I saw that, you know, this last month at the Forest Refuge, Here I was, just in one little room, 
two and a quarter meals a day. (laughs) No distractions, nothing to do. And yet, feeling totally contented, not wanting anything else. And it felt so wonderful. And I know, at least at times, I'm sure you've had that taste. Okay, so to really see when the mind gets caught in this covetousness, this wanting, it's an unskillful state of mind. It leads to suffering. The next unskillful, the second unskillful state of mind, which has been talked about a fair amount, is ill will, is aversion, is anger, is fear, is sorrow and grief. Um, Sharon talked a lot about aversion, you know, and how it manifests in our lives on retreat. Susan and talking about patience, how we can have so much aversion about just what's happening in our practice. So we want to see, we want to really recognize that when we're caught in that, it's a contraction, it's a state of suffering. I want to just explore a little bit what it means to see, understand grief and sorrow as containing aversion, because that's not so obvious. And it's a very delicate subject. When we look at states like grief and sorrow, I think it's very helpful if we can be open enough to really investigate, to go in and and to investigate, okay, what are the root sources of these emotions? but at the same time to have the space within us to accept them fully and to feel them fully. So it's not a suggestion of pushing away or denying. or It's really a question of taking what might be the unusual step of investigating them. Because there's some pretty interesting things to learn. Sorrow and grief, as we all know, arise from some experience of loss. Now, loss is really another word for change. Something in our life changes. So we can look, is there a version that's coming up in our mind to what the new situation is? Is there attachment to what was lost? You know, whether it's a person or a possession or just a a life situation. What first intrigued me about looking at this were two different things I read in the Buddhist teachings, quite separate from one another. But when in my mind I put them next to one another, it really illuminated something quite striking to me. One had to do with the death of the two foremost disciples of the Buddha, Sariputta and Moggallana. They were older than the Buddha. They died first. These were the two preeminent disciples. And the Buddha used various examples when they died. He said, you know, so great was their contribution to the Sangha, to the order of monks and nuns. You know, it was like the light of the sun and the moon left the sky. Or it was like the you know, great tree in the forest had fallen. So it was a very kind of beautiful and poignant expression of the loss. There was a loss you know, that he was expressing. Okay, so that was one. Came across that and I was familiar with it. <clears throat> and then I read the opening to the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness the basic, basic discourse on the practice. And the Buddha says, this practice is the way for the purification of beings, for overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearing of pain and grief, 
for the realization of nirvana. On the one hand, expressing the loss, it's like the light of the sun and the moon leaving the sky, and on the other hand saying, this practice leads to the overcoming of sorrow, to the disappearance of pain and grief. And I thought, well, maybe loss and grief are really two quite distinct things. Usually for us, they're so intertwined. Just like love and attachment are often intertwined. And I began to reflect how grief is really a non-acceptance of loss. That's when we grieve. And so is there the possibility of opening to the feeling of loss, opening to the feeling of loss, with acceptance rather than with non-acceptance. And of course this is for many people the grieving process, but if we don't really understand what it's about, it can go on for a long time. Whereas if we do understand, there's a possibility of really coming back in a very tender way and just opening ourselves to that feeling. The Buddha was very, very direct about this. This is from one of the oldest collections, the earliest teachings of the Buddha. He said, when a house is burning, the fire is put out by water. In the same way, a wise person lets go of sorrow, like the wind blowing away a tuft of cotton. Those who are seeking their own happiness should pull out the dart they have stuck in themselves, the arrowhead of grieving, of desiring, of despair. Those who have taken out the dart have passed beyond all grief. This person is still. So this is a a very challenging teaching. Because we can understand that, yes, their grief and sorrow may contain aversion within them, not a wholesome state, and yet we need to be right where we are. You know, we can't pretend to kind of have an idealized picture of where, oh, I'm not grieving, I don't have sorrow, We can understand something deeply and practice with it and at the same time be totally present with where we are in the process. Because most of us are probably not free of attachment and desire and fear and sorrow and grief, but we can work with it in a more and more skillful way if we understand it. Okay, the last of the unskillful mental actions. There's covetousness, there's ill will or aversion. The last is called wrong view. It's a wrong view of things. And I'll try to compress this. The different aspects of wrong view, one of the key aspects is not considering the law of karma, which means not understanding that all of our actions have consequences. They are not happening in a vacuum. We plant a seed, the seed is going to bear fruit. Each of our actions will bear fruit. What kind of fruit do we want? Wrong view is the belief that there is no result from skillful or unskillful actions. And so we blithely go about our lives not paying attention and so creating the seeds of a lot of suffering. So this, Buddha called this aspect of wrong view one of the most dangerous unskillful actions. It's an action of mind. Because if we don't have the understanding that actions bring results, we don't bring any discernment to what we're doing. 
when we're about to perform an action and we can have some mindfulness and say, is this skillful or is it unskillful? Where is this action leading? Do I actually want to go where it's leading? That, that empowers our lives. If we don't have this understanding, we are just acting out many different patterns of conditioning, some of which may be wholesome, some or many of which are not. You have about five more minutes of patience. <laughs> Usually my colleagues are the ones who are <laughs> enough already. <laughs> but this I, I just wanted to talk about this a little bit because it's just it's something that's interesting to me and not not so obvious. That is it's an aspect of wrong view that the Buddha talked about the belief that there aren't enlightened beings in the world. Now, when I first came across that, yeah, it didn't didn't seem that meaningful. It didn't seem like such a big thing, whether you believed it or you didn't believe it. You know, so I didn't didn't give it much import. But as I read, I mean, the Buddha said it, so at least it's worth, you know, giving a little reflection. You know, well, what did he actually mean? And I saw that when we don't acknowledge the possibility of awakening, enlightenment in others, we are not honoring that possibility in ourselves. And I remember very distinctly when I first was getting interested in this, and I had just come back from the Peace Corps, I was back home for a while before returning to India, And I remember reflecting on how in our culture how to say I don't think we really have a sense of wise people and the fact that there can be people with great wisdom. You know, it's interesting just culturally in India you could go to any village and say, Well, where's the local guru? the local teacher, and I'm not saying that all of them are so wise, but you go to, they, will, they will point you to somebody because it's a cultural value. Here, I mean, you go into Barry and say, well, you know, where's your local wise person? <laughs> <laughs> well, if they're really in the know, they'll point up here, but, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> So it's just this notion, you know, it's not part of our culture. And it's, it's odd, really, isn't it? That, that we don't value wisdom in that way. And to realize, yeah, there are beings who are really wise, who are really awakened. So it is a kind of wrong view not to acknowledge that. Because if we don't, as I said, we don't see that we have that same potential to develop wisdom in ourselves. And what that leads to is really a great Western psychological disease, which are all those feelings of unworthiness and self-hatred, because we're not honoring, we're not seeing that place. Yes, I have within me, as we all do, the potential for wisdom, the potential for awakening. So this, this is really quite important. And when somebody, when the Dalai Lama it was actually here. He visited many, many years ago. Somebody asked him, they were saying, you know, I just have all these feelings of unworthiness. And it was interesting. It's the only time, although he probably has done it elsewhere, but he got very strong and, and you know, almost sharp in response. He said, you should not be discouraged. You're feeling I am of no value is wrong, is absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself. You know, it was, it was so pointed, you know, to a feeling that's very prevalent among many people. So I think it's very helpful to realize that this feeling of unworthiness 
really is a wrong view of self. So the, the issue is not somehow making oneself more worthy. We are already worthy. It's seeing that that thought is the problem and buying into that thought or that feeling. Because this, there's a lot here, but... And the last aspect, which I'm not going to go into at all, but till the Vipassana course, so those of you who are leaving will have to come back. (laughs) And that is the whole understanding of selflessness as an aspect of right view, and how wrong view is this attachment to the view of self, of I, of ego. So these are the ten unwholesome actions, three of body, Killing, stealing, sexual misconduct. Four of speech, untruthful speech, harsh speech, gossip, useless speech. Three of mind, covetousness, ill will, and wrong view. It was really out of the Buddha's great compassion that he pointed these out to us because they're dangers. It's like going along the beach and seeing a sign, dangerous undertow. The Buddha is saying, these actions are dangerous. They cause suffering to ourselves. They cause suffering to other people. Take care. It's a practice, and we're just all engaged in this practice of refining our understanding and manifesting these feelings of metta and friendliness and goodwill, manifesting them in how we live and how we act and how we relate. The Dalai Lama said that he comes from a part of Tibet where people are actually quite short-tempered. But over the years, he said he trained himself and... In his words, even though he's a lazy practitioner, he has seen much improvement. (laughs) So we train ourselves. We train ourselves in these teachings of all the Buddhas, refraining from unskillful actions, performing skillful ones, purifying the mind. I'd just like to close with a few lines of a poem by Galway Canal, which kind of sums it up beautifully. He says, Sometimes we need to reteach a thing its loveliness. To teach it in words and in deeds, it is lovely, so that it flowers from within of self blessing. And that's our practice. Teaching ourselves in words and in deeds. We are lovely, so that we flower from within of self-blessing. Let's just sit for a couple of minutes. May the merit of our practice together be dedicated to the welfare and the happiness and the awakening of all beings.
Thank you for your kind patience. <laughs>